Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Hey, uh, my understanding is um, after World War II, when the Nuremberg trials uh, started, that's uh, the trials of different war criminals from Nazi Germany and other places, that there were three different opinions amongst the allied nations about how to move forward. Uh, The first opinion was from Stalin himself, and he wanted to put to death 50,000 to 100,000 officers in, in the German army. Winston Churchill, the leader of of England, wanted a a summary execution. That means an execution without trial of all of those that they felt were guilty. And it was the American advocates, the American leadership, that pushed for an international tribunal, a a kind of uh, trial that was to happen. And eventually, uh, the, the Americans kind of won over Churchill, and this is exactly what happened See, it goes to show that there's all kinds of various responses to this idea of judgment. And our our responses to judgment are as varied as we are. Some will say uh, that God, a God who judges, is somehow immoral. And so they push away from a God who who exercises judgment. Others will say they they seemingly are over-interested in a God who judges. And this morning, as we kind of turn to a passage that really wants to focus in on these judgment of these scoffers, we want to just take inventory for a second. See, fundamentally, because sin exists, God's judgment is necessary. But for now, God waits to bring His judgment. And so you and I, we're, we're called to keep two truths in tension right now. God is gracious gracious not to judge yet, but God is just to judge everyone soon. Let me say this again. God is gracious not to judge yet, but He's just to judge everyone soon. See, as we turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, we find this returned and renewed emphasis upon judgment and God's justice and His orientation around His righteousness. As we've spent 2 Peter chapter 2 talking about false teachers, now we come back to this, this sense of God's justice and His judgment that is coming. And it's a right and good emphasis. See, here's our big idea this morning. God waits to judge, to give time for repentance. And really, we're going to see this in three different phases in our passage. In verses 1 through 7, we're going to see that scoffers will question God's judgment. Really, our passage this morning is going to break down to a discussion of three different groups or three different uh, entities, right? The first is the scoffers and who they are and what they're all about. And the second is, is Peter's going to turn our attention to God and His patience and justice in verses 8 through 10. And then finally, in verses 11 through 13, God's people us. We wait eagerly for righteousness. So we want to dig in this morning, and we're going to start in verses 1 through 7, that scoffers will question God's judgment in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Read with me part of the section that Brian read in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. 
knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God, and that by means of these, the world that it then existed was deluged with water and perished. But the same word, the heavens, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. See, first Peter starts off and he gives us a purpose of why he's writing this book, right? Sometimes we might pick up a book of the Bible and say, what exactly is the author's purpose in talking about these things? And it's rare that an author would give us such a clear purpose statement that like Peter gives us right here. He tells us in verse one, this is the second letter that I'm writing to you. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. He tells us that he's there, he's writing because he wants to to stir up our minds and the minds of those who read this epistle. And how does he want to do that? He tells us in verse 2 that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. See, Peter's writing to kind of awaken our minds through the pathway of the Scriptures themselves. And this isn't new to this epistle. When we were back in chapter 1, in verse 3 and 4, we looked at this last week, Peter told us that God gave us His precious promises that we would become partakers of the divine nature and thereby live in a changed or transformed character. Uh, This isn't anything new to Peter. Peter's constantly writing about the authority of the Scriptures, the importance of the prophets, and telling us how that can change our faith and give us a renewed a life or, or pattern. And so here Peter does the same. And the stirring of our minds is not an end in itself. He has a specific uh, kind of application that he's thinking of. Specifically, Peter wants us to use the Scriptures to stir our mind and guard against what he calls scoffers in verses 3 and 4. Look at verse 3 with me. He says that. He says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days. Well, what are they going to do? They're going to come with scoffing. That's what scoffers do. They come with scoffing course, right? But Peter has a a more in-depth description here. In verses 3 and 4, he describes for us that they're going to come in the last days. That's what he says in verse 3, knowing this, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. There's kind of a a barometer by which we assess uh, the nearness of God's judgment, the the sense of overwhelming scoffing at God's um, return. Secondly, that they're going to follow their sinful desires. That's what he says that in, in, verse, in the second half of verse 3, that following their own desires, just like the false prophets that we saw or the false teachers we saw in chapter 2, these scoffers will be those who just follow their own sinful desires. And finally, they will question God's return. Probably the clearest designation that Peter gives us that these these people are openly questioning whether God will come. And look at what he says in verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. By the way, this isn't new to the Scriptures. We see this all the time. The psalmist, he he says... uh, you know, Psalm 115, the psalmist will say, why do the nations say, where now 
is your God. Or in Psalm 73, uh, Asaph writes, and he says that uh, they say, these uh, kind of wicked men, they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? There's always been this questioning of whether God would actually bring judgment and justice to the earth. It's not a new question. It's existed for generations. And even now, we have the likes of, uh, of the new atheist, Christopher Hitchens, or whoever else, questioning whether God will return or whether God actually exists at all. So Peter's drawing attention to a group of people who will question God's return and judgment, who pursue their own sinful jo- desire, who are a sign of God's coming judgment. But Peter can't help but respond in verses 5 through 7. And what he says is that creation provides this self-evident rebuttal of these scoffers. Creation itself reminds us that God is going to judge. He highlights that God used water, the thing he spoke into creation, into existence, that he used water to judge the world one time, way back in Genesis 6, when God flooded the earth and he opened up the floodgates, and sure enough, water covered all the earth. We see a a, a universal worldwide flood, and, and all of mankind is judged except for Noah and his family. We're reminded then, in verse 7, he reminds us that God will use the sky to bring about his judgment. And we see, this, we see this throughout the Scriptures. We see it in places like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. But specifically in Revelation chapter 6, in verse 12, uh, John writes, he says, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit." And the sky vanished like a scroll is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. See, John is describing the destruction of the creation itself, which is bound up with the judgment of mankind. And he's telling us, he's drawing our attention, Peter is drawing our attention to this idea that just because the heavens and the earth exist, it's a reminder that someday God will judge it all, that the stars themselves will fall out of the sky, that the sky itself will be rolled up as a scroll, that the islands will be displaced and removed, that God will bring judgment to the earth and he will show it and manifest it in creation itself. See, the Bible describes this catastrophic destruction of creation as we know it, and these events are bound up with the judgment of mankind. See, we've got to stop here. We've just got to consider something for, for a moment. When we talk about these scoffers and we talk about men, wicked men, who speak openly and arrogantly about God's judgment and His justice, we just pause and we consider that judgment is necessary because of human sin. See, for those who truly suffer horrible wrongs, there must be a God who judges the wrongs we've endured. Just think about our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan right now. The Christians who are persecuted in Afghanistan have only hope in God's coming judgment that God will come and make things right. This has been the case throughout generations of Christians who have been persecuted around the earth. See, the evils perpetrated against our brothers and sisters throughout history uh, can only be made right by a righteous judge who will make all things right in the end. Ever think about this? We as a people are incapable of bringing about true justice. 
Have you ever noticed that our justice is inherently slanted? Let me just give two examples. First, uh, we've talked about this before, but uh, in the affirmative action policies, we tried to kind of right the wrongs of some uh, systemic injustices in in, uh, Jim Crow and other places in the 1960s. We created injustice by trying to address injustice. We When we look back at the mandatory minimums of the 1980s and 1990s, we saw uh, that the prosecution of crack cocaine usage was much stronger than the prosecution of cocaine usage. Why? Because crack was largely a black issue and cocaine was largely a white issue. And so we, when we try to bring justice to the situation, we inevitably fail. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. He says, none are more unjust in their judgments than those who have a high opinion of themselves. See, every time we try to create some type of justice, we end up just muddying the waters of justice. And what we really need is a righteous, holy judge, the coming justice of God to be established on the earth. See, we know that there is a righteous judge who sees all, who hears all, who judges justly, and who will bring finality to wickedness. He will make all things right. He will make all things new. See, in verses 8 through 10, Peter warns us, uh, he wants us, excuse me, now to turn our attention to the God of justice and patience to turn our attention away from the scoffers, away from the injustice, away from the wrongdoing, and to turn our attention instead to a God who rules in heaven. So look with me at verses 8 through 10. Uh, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." I think Peter tells us three things about the character of God in these verses. First, he draws our attention in verse 8 to say that God is eternal. Do not overlook this one fact, brothers, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Some of you parents are thinking like one day feels like a thousand years. And some of you parents of older children, you feel like those 18 years were like a day, right? But we're talking about something different. Once again, Peter wants to be sure that we don't overlook something. He he wants to make sure that we're paying attention to this fact that God has a a perspective on time that is different than our own. Have you ever thought about this? That an eternal God who is omniscient and has existed forever and knows all things before they happen, he sees everything simultaneously. See, you and I, what we do is we learn uh, linearly, right? We come to know specific truths at specific times. So I met my wife when we were in college in 2001, and I learned that her name was Jody. And, and then I learned that uh, she liked to play tennis, and I learned uh, all kinds of, someday I'll learn that she doesn't like to be used in preaching illustrations. That will happen someday in the future. 
But I learned those things in a linear fashion. I didn't just know them. But our God, he sees everything and knows everything as it were at once. And so what happens then is when 2020 happens and it feels like an eternity to you and I, it's not an eternity to our God. See, Peter's point is to say that God is not time-bound like we are. Thus, to question God's judgment because of time is to misunderstand the nature of God. It's Peter's critique of these scoffers to say, no, they're missing it. They don't understand who God is, that he's one who exists outside of time. He sees all of time. And so if we feel like he's delayed, that doesn't mean that he's not going to judge. It's like waking up at 3 a.m. and wondering why your alarm clock set for 6 a.m. hasn't gone off yet. Peter tells us that God hasn't judged yet, not because he's not going to, but because he's fundamentally patient. So that's the second thing that he tells us, that God is eternal. He sees all things simultaneously with full knowledge. But secondly, that God himself is utterly patient. That's what he says in verse 9. Look, look at what he says there. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, Peter tells us that God is patiently waiting for the full number of his people to come to faith. And by the way, we we just want to stop and just talk about what this passage is really saying, because this can be very confusing. When we're talking about the word all, it's what he says in verse 9, that uh, that all should reach repentance. We can't really be talking about the word all, like everyone. Why? Why? Because in this passage, we're talking about a God who judges. There's a judgment that's coming. Not all will come to repentance, right? And so it's very confusing. All must mean something different than everyone. It probably more likely means all of God's people or all of God's church. Some might say, and they might object, and they say, no, Peter is saying that, that God is patiently waiting for all men to turn to him in repentance. He's keeping the doors open as long as possible. And I have two objections. The first is, is a passage that we saw in 1 Peter chapter 2, where, where Peter said that uh, people disobeyed the word because they were destined to do so. Second, if, if God has a desire that goes unfulfilled, He desires all men to come to repentance then he stops being God. Let's dig into that for a second. If God desires all men to come to repentance and they don't, his will in some sense is thwarted. It's contrary to what Psalmist says in Psalm 115. Our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. See, if we interpret this passage to mean that God has a desire for all people to come to repentance, he is either incapable of bringing them to repentance, or he is really going to save all men and therefore not judge others, right? There's two options. See, the best interpretation then is for us to look and say, when God desires that all men, that means all of his people will come to repentance. And I think that fits the context best. 
See, Peter is describing God's patience as he waits for the fullness of his people to come to repentance. He's waiting for all of his church, the elect, before the foundations of the earth, the pre- those predestined to new life. And even now, he holds back the floodwaters of his wrath until all of his people have trusted in him, until all of his own have come to him in repentance and faith. Right? What is it that's holding back the judgment of God? There are still those who will repent. Now notice, I didn't say still those who might repent. There are those who will repent and come to faith in Jesus Christ. And God patiently waits. So God is eternal. God is patient. And finally in verse 10, he tells us that God is just. Look at verse 10 what he says. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. See, God is just. The day of the Lord will come swiftly, secretly, like like a thief. Some of you grew up in the the 80s and 90s, like a thief in the night, or what was that movie that came out? Um, But it will come swiftly, secretly, We've got to talk about this issue. What is the day of the Lord? What is that? Isn't every day the day of the Lord? What are we, what are we talking about here? See, in the Old Testament, there was shorthand for a day of intense judgment from God. It's spoken most notably in passages like Isaiah 13, or most notably in Joel chapter 2, where God describes a day where he will bring his wrath to the earth that he will establish his kingdom, that he will deliver his people with finality. Look at this description of the day of the Lord there in verse 10. He says, The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. I mean, think about what Peter is describing here. He's describing the burning up, the dissolving of of the heavens, the stars falling out of the sky, the, the, the sky being rolled up as a scroll, as Isaiah and Revelation both say, the heavenly bodies, sun, moon, stars, burned up, gone, the earth itself uh, dissolved, destroyed, gone, and all of our actions laid bare for all humanity and God himself to see. That's what Peter describes. He describes the righteous judgment of God, the day of the Lord, and it's unfolding so that everything is exposed for what it is. See, it's not just that God's judgment is necessary because we humans need judgment. It's that judgment is in consideration of God's character, that when we understand God to be righteous and just, we are required to uh, lead to this idea that human sinfulness will be judged by a righteous God. See, if God is righteous and just, sin must be punished in judgment And if there's no such thing as judgment, either God is unable to judge or unwilling to judge, and both of those lead us to a God not worth following. In other words, if God is truly to be godly, judgment is inevitable. Let's just say it this way. A God who doesn't judge human sinfulness isn't a God worth believing in. When I was a kid, 
I don't know how much I want to get into this story because it's highly embarrassing to me. But as a kid, I remember coming home one day and, and my mom was very upset with me. And what had happened was I didn't participate in a wrong thing that had happened, but I watched a wrong thing that had happened. And somebody's mom called my mom. And it was kind of a day of reckoning when I came home, right? And, and I came home and, and my mom's talking to me about this. And I said, mom, I didn't do anything. I don't know why you're so upset. I, I did nothing wrong. And she said, yes, but you stood by while other people did wrong. And it sunk in with me then that to do right isn't just about me performing right actions. It's about me speaking up about wrong actions. If God is to be righteous, he can't just be one that does righteous things. He's one who judges unrighteous things. See, the truth is that someone who is truly righteous isn't uh, content to just perform righteousness. He asks righteousness of those around him. And if we believe in a God who is unwilling to judge wickedness, is he truly righteous? So Peter has shown us scoffers. He's shown us the character of God. And now in verses 11 through 13, he wants to show us God's people. How do God's people faithfully respond to a God who promises judgment? Look with me at verses 11 through 13. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So Peter tells us three appropriate behaviors for us. First, we live lives of holiness and godliness. If, if God is going to burn up the heavens and the earth in an expression of his intense judgment and justice, shouldn't we be people who like pay attention to what righteousness and holiness call us to? Shouldn't we kind of take into consideration the idea that all of this around us is, is going to be burned and that God is going to establish his justice on the earth? It's not because we're trying to, to pass the test or we're trying to be good enough for God, but because we're partakers of His divine nature and we supplement our faith with these new characteristics, uh, uh, faith and hope and love and all of the, uh, the fruits of the Spirit or whatever else it might be. We confirm our true faith in Jesus by living it out in righteousness. See, you and I are to be people who live in holiness and righteousness, anticipating the return of our God. That's not the only thing he calls us to. He also says, uh, according to verse 12, that we would wait. The notion is there that if God himself is patient, we should be too. We patiently wait for God's coming judgment. We patiently wait for vindication. We patiently wait for God's reward. See, right now, our duty is to wait and maintain a life of faith until God brings about his kingdom and rules amongst his people. We wait as Christians. We patiently wait for the return, for the coming wrath of God, for the establishment of his righteousness in our midst. 
And so you and I, we live righteously. We wait patiently. And finally, the, the second thing he says in verse 12 is that we hasten the coming of the day of God. First of all, you might say, what in the world does the word hasten mean? It means to, to speed something up, to bring it along more quickly. And we've got to stop and say, how do we, as just random people, Christians believing in God, how do we hasten God's return? How do we hasten the return of Christ and the judgment of God? See, Peter told us that God is patiently waiting on his people's repentance. And so the one thing holding back his return and judgment is the repentance of his people. So when you and I live out the life of faith before unbelieving eyes of some person out there and they see our good works, they might actually glorify God in heaven, turn to God in faith and repentance. That's how we hasten the day of the Lord. We faithfully act out our life of believing. We verbalize the gospel to our neighbors. We speak up about our hope in Jesus Christ. And someday it pushes the kingdom program of God along so that he might return and judge the earth, right? See, we wait in verse 13, and I think this verse is so beautiful and so good and so rich. We wait for the glorious, righteous presence of God with us. Look at verse 13. According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens, new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Stars falling out of the sky, sky rolled up like a scroll, islands moved about, the earth disappearing, everything fleeting from the righteous presence of God, and he establishes new heavens, new earth. For what purpose? Righteousness. I just ask you, are you just thirsty for righteousness right now? Are you just tired are you worn out by the, the unrighteousness that we're surrounded by? Are you worn out by the, the wickedness that we see all around us? Are you just thirsting for this establishment of righteousness? I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, it's coming. See, specifically, we're waiting for this new heavens, this new earth where righteousness, namely the person of Jesus Christ, God the Father, God the Spirit, dwelling with us. Isn't that worth waiting for? See, we've seen that judgment is necessary because of human sinfulness. Judgment is necessary because of, of God's character. One thing we might miss is that judgment was necessary for God's righteousness to dwell with us. Peter shows us these three gospel-rich phases. He says that right now, God's patiently waiting for repentance. He says that someday God will judge justly. And finally, God will dwell righteously. So right now, he's waiting patiently. Soon, he will judge justly. And finally, he will dwell righteously. But all of this hangs upon the foundation of one who was judged in our place. See, the Scriptures in total are always speaking, and they're culminating to the substitutionary death of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. 
who in his full righteousness took on my punishment, and if you have faith, your punishment that you deserved, the judgment that you deserved because of your sin. We read these passages all the time. We see Isaiah 53, that he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We might miss passages like Galatians chapter 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We might miss all of these statements of of the New Testament and the Old Testament where, where God is replacing our sinfulness. He's taking on our sinfulness and laying it on the shoulders of His righteous Son so that you and I might not experience the wrath and the judgment of God, but instead that would be laid upon His own Son at Calvary so that right now God can be patient. So that someday He can judge justly based upon what we've done with the person Jesus Christ. And so someday that he can dwell with us righteously as he's brought about renewal and resurrection in the lives of those who believe in him. See, Jesus himself became our substitute and bore the Father's judgment. He took the punishment of sin upon himself. And because Jesus bore God's judgment, we can look forward to his return. We can uh, respond with joy, right? There's, there's two responses to the judgment of God that's coming. There's fear and there's joy. You might say, well, there's others. There's, you know, indifference. I don't know that there is. See, we are afraid of Jesus' return when we anticipate His judgment. For those who have faith in Christ, we anticipate His return because the fear of judgment has been removed by the cross of Jesus Christ. Say, what do we do? What do we do with this passage? What do we make of it? How do we step out of this building and and have any kind of uh, tangible understanding of what Peter's saying to us? How does it change my life for a Monday morning? What's it do for a Sunday afternoon as I'm watching the Browns lose, probably? What do we do? Well, there's two applications I want to draw our attention to this morning. See, we might be here, and we might be those who haven't fully trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> and the statement this morning is, is such that uh, God is coming to judge the earth. And so the, the heartfelt call this morning is repent. Turn from your sin. Turn to Christ in repentance. The call to our co-workers and friends tomorrow morning is to repent, to, to turn to Christ, to find grace and mercy in our time of need because a faithful Savior has gone before us and borne our judgment on our behalf. See, there's... There's no hiding it this morning, right? In a, a room this size, in a church this size, we, we might anticipate that all of us are Christians and we would be wrong. There, there's certainly some amongst us that haven't really trusted in Christ, that haven't really turned to Him in faith. <clears throat> so it remains upon us to repent to turn from our sin, to do that 180-degree turn from our selfishness, from our own uh, pursuits, and actually to trust Christ that He 
brings about the righteousness that he desires. But the second application from us this morning, or to us this morning from this passage is Christ is coming, so take heart. If you're here this morning and you're in Christ, Christ is coming. He someday will wipe the slate clean. He someday will establish his own righteousness in our midst. Someday he will make all these things new. We don't have to be bound up with this anymore. We should look forward to that day of of God's return, of his goodness and his establishment of justice as he clears the deck for us. As we close, I'm reminded as we were preparing this, John Stott has a a long section that he quotes from a, a playlet entitled The Long Silence. I thought it was so appropriate for us this morning as we talk about God's judgment. See, what this playlet really uh, describes is it describes a group of people that had suffered injustices, and at the last day they gather themselves together, and it's like they want to put God himself on trial. And so I invite you to listen this morning. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them, but some groups near the front talked heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? Snapped a pert brunette. And she ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, and death. In another group, a black man lowered his collar and he says, what about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but for being black. In another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes, why should I suffer, she murmured, it wasn't my fault. And far out across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in his world how lucky God was to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping, no fear, no hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he had suffered most. A Jew, a black man, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, a thalidomide child. And in the center of the plain, they consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case, and it was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think of him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury, and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured, and at the last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then, let him die. Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died, and let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. And as each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. 
And when the last had finished pronouncing the sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly all knew that God had already served his sentence. If we want to complain about a God of justice who brings justice, we also have to go back to Calvary to see a God who bore justice. With that in mind, let's be those Christians who are filled with hope, gratitude. I want to pray to that end this morning, that God gives us hope and gratitude as we look at Christ who bore our wrath. Lord, we thank You. We thank You for the person that You have given to us in Christ that is now our faithful high priest. We thank You that now we have a better word before Your throne because of Christ's righteousness. That He suffered and died the death that we deserved. So Lord, we thank You for that. I pray, Father, in response to the cross that You would make us people of gratitude, people of hope. That we would look forward to Jesus' return to judge the earth. Because we know that someday You'll establish Your righteousness in our midst. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.